Do you have any test operation in restricted area 2508? Area 31, Roger. Traffic is quite luminous and is exhibiting some non-ballistic motion, over. Roger, Area 31. Continue to send at your discretion, over. Okay, Senator. The traffic is approaching head-on, ultra-bright, and really moving. They're right by us, right now. There are a thousand UFO sightings reported around the world every month. 90% of these sightings can be explained, but 10% cannot. Officially and unofficially, the U.S. military has been investigating UFOs since 1947. Their top secret goal is to find out what's behind these unexplained sightings. The Pentagon classifies them as unusual airborne anomalies, but a better term is X-Files. Join us now as Mac Wanwan and Commander Cobra explore these unsolved cases, UFO incidents that baffle even the U.S. military. This is Mac Maloney's Military X-Files. And now, here's Mac Maloney. Well, good evening, everyone. Welcome to Mac Maloney's Military X-Files show here on the Distant Thunder Radio Network. This is Mac Maloney. Wow, what a show we have for you tonight. Uh, edition 2 of our World War II Trivia Contest. Coming up later, but let me introduce the members of the posse. Girls, get ready. Get that big box of Kleenex. Get that big box of wipes. Get your fan. Get your mister because the very famous one one is here. Hello, Mac. Good to be on the show with you tonight. And you know, even though you're a little bit under the weather, I know you'll you'll play through it. Thank you. You'll be like uh, like Brad Marchand. You know, he'll he'll score mm -hmm. big and. Life will be good. Hockey reference. Okay. Um, uh, sorry, uh, mid middle-aged ladies. No Coco tonight. No Coco. Uh, he's on a secret mission. However, middle-aged ladies might be thrilled to hear that uh, Switchblade Steve Ward is here. Switchy, how you doing up there in Battle Creek, Michigan? Uh, it, uh, it's great to be here. Okay. We both have the same cold. Is that the angle? <clears throat> I, I think so. Okay. Some kind of uh, computer virus. Right, because we haven't seen each other. <laughs> across the uh, <laughs> Internet. Okay. Um, also joining us is uh, Raven, our favorite good witch up there in New York. Raven, how are you doing tonight? Hello, my friends. I'm doing wonderful. Thank you for having me. Hello, Raven. Hello. Do you, uh, Is this a bun night or what? Can you just tell us right off the bat? Mm-hmm. It's a bun night. Bun night. It's really humid here again, so I gotta do something. Okay, it's official. Ever put any decorations in there, like a knitting needle or something like bun that, night. Raven? I got some quarters up there, just Whoa. in case I need one. Quarters. I know I can chuck them at people if I need to. Interesting. Okay. All right. Inflation. I used to do it with pennies, but um, also joining us. Let's just go around the table here. Our good friend Jim Frankel down in uh, Nashville, Tennessee. Jim Frankel, my agent and friend. How you doing there, Jim? I'm just fine, y'all. Nice to see you. <laughs> You're the last person in the world to be saying y'all there, my friend. All right. Well, you know, in Nashville, if you don't say y'all, they beat you up. You, know, you don't stay in Nashville. Oh, okay. <laughs> that I understand. Okay. Um, also uh, joining us, Tony Cisneros. Up there in Washington State, Tony, how you doing tonight? Hey, Mac, I'm doing pretty good. How are you? It's great Tony, to be here. Tony runs Alp Ventures. It's a World War II uh, touring company where they bring you on tours of uh, World War II battle sites in Europe. Also does some UFO uh, tours we'll be talking about later on. And uh, also with us, I'm saving the second best for last, Gary Olson, very famous author. Gary, are you there? 
Yes, I am. Thank okay. you very much for allowing me to plug my world famous book, The 15 Geniuses Behind the Lens, how the uh, how the top directors shaped the movies that we've seen today. Mm -hmm. Excellent. And that is without Quentin Tarantino, awesome. correct? Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> yes, yeah. Okay. He didn't make the list. Okay. A stunning omission. Yeah, not that stunning. Okay, and <laughs> uh, as tonight we are doing uh, the World War II Trivia Quest uh, Contest, joining us again is our good friend Phil Orbanes from uh, Winning Moves Company. Phil, how are you doing? Doing fine, thank you. You look good. You look good. Of course, we're on the radio, well, but you look good. It's my it's it's my birthday. I better look good. Your birthday. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Thank you. What's the 74, old? 74 times around the sun. 74. Oh, no, you're not. Wow. Yeah. You look good for you 74. You and Ronnie Wood. Is Ronnie yeah. Wood the same age? How about yeah. that? Wow. Exactly. And Yep. Same age, well, same birthday. Born on the same day. Well. I've seen him in concert. I love Gemini's. Yeah, me he's too. awesome. Yeah, Gemini's, Gemini's go in a lot of different directions wow. mm -hmm. at once. <laughs> so, um, so tonight what we're going to do? We do it? We're going to do um, World War II trivia contest. We did this a couple months ago. Had a lot of fun. We're going to announce the winner of last uh, the last um, contest. And what we'll do is um, when we come back from break, we um, four of us: Jim and Tony and Gary and I are going to be uh, playing. Phil is the master of ceremonies, switches the cheerleader, Raven's going to keep score, unless you guys want to switch that up. Um, and um, Go team. Tim, <laughs> thank you, Switchy. No pom-poms, though? No? So uh, 10 questions to all of us, and then the two survivors go on to play the second round. Right. And um, the uh, prize tonight is, Phil, why don't you tell us what the prize is? Okay, well, the prize for the first World War II quiz was a copy of the new uh, variant of Risk called Risk Europe. But tonight, the prize for that uh, Mac will be drawing at random from listeners is an authentic reproduction of the original 1959 risk game with the beautiful polished wooden armies nice oh man that's wow. cool wow. Okay. nice yeah very cool so that's what we're playing for tonight so the way to do it folks is to go to macmaloney.com hit the contact button just send us your email we're going to put your name in the magic fishbowl whoever wins will pick a name out of the magic fishbowl and if it's yours You'll win that cool prize. So now that we're doing, why don't we announce the winner from the last um, the last game, Raven? Okay. Right. Yeah. So when um, we play, so the Go ahead, please. Go ahead. We should have a drum roll. Uh, the here. winner. Drum roll. Drum roll. Uh, Kevin Kimball of Sammamish, Washington. Well, let's give him a hand. Let's please give him a hand. A little. We'll sweeten it up. But Kevin Kimball, okay, up in uh, Washington. State. Mac, you'll like send, you'll, you'll send me his address by email yep. so I can get the game out for him, and I'll do that on Thursday. Yeah, that's cool. Thank you. So, because it wouldn't be a show without a bit, we have a little bit of a bit here. Okay. Um, and the bit is boy, I did this in a stupor. <laughs> okay. How Juan Juan would have contributed to the World War II effort if he was alive back then? <laughs> All right. How Juan Juan would have contributed to the World War II effort had he been alive back then. Well, I think he was alive back then, but he was too was old. Almost to alive back then. 
Okay, you ready? If everyone get the bit, then let's go. Raven, number 10. Oh, first of all, start the music. All right. Start the music, Mac. Number, number 10. 10. By starting Juan Juan's Boot Camp Playhouse Theater and doing scenes from Downtown Abbey for the troops. Right? Can't you see them doing that? Okay, let's go, folks. We got nine more of them. Okay, uh, number nine, please. I'd be playing. I'd be playing oh, Matthew. Boy. Yeah, you'd be playing all the parts. Uh, go ahead, please. Number nine. I would be. Number nine. Uh, by telling everyone he meets, I am the boogie woogie bugle boy of Company B. Right. Just do. Such a good oh, song. Wow, is this on? I always appreciated uh, buglers in that era. Okay, all right. Let's see. Number eight. How one one would contribute to the World War II war. By splicing together Randolph Scott and Tyrone Power movies for the admirals in Newport. <laughs> wow. Okay. And that, that's my specialty. Yikes. <laughs> With a helmet on, I'd be doing that. Okay, please. Next one, please, Raven. <laughs> By greeting the troop ships dressed up as the incredible human donut and holding a sign that says, Hey, sailor, dunk me. Yeah, dunk me. <laughs> <laughs> that's excellent. Right. That's a good one. Okay. Yeah. All right, there we I'd go. Do that. Next one, please, Raven. <laughs> Number six, by offering to motorize FDR's wheelchair with six speeds, moon hubcaps, and maybe a Hemi. Might <laughs> 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 be a little indelicate. Yes. I don't know. <laughs> I was desperate. Okay. Uh, Number five, how one one would help BF in World War II had he been around? By volunteering to parachute into Germany and woo Ava Braun away from Dolphy Hitler. Yeah, I could, could you do, do that. that. Could you do I that? Could really, I could really nip the war in the bud right That's there. Right. You could have ended it if you were around. Yes. Okay. Next one, please, Raven. By offering to do Tojo's laundry for a year. Wow, that's a long time. Yeah, okay, well, I have to think about that right. one. It's actually a lot pretty, of whites. Actually, Jeez. pretty racist. <laughs> pretty racist when you think of it, but that's okay. All right, so, uh, next one, please, <laughs> Raven. Number three, by starting an anti-Nazi dating channel called We'll Always Have Stalingrad. Right. <laughs> Bring some lonely hearts together. Yeah. I don't know if I'd go that far. Okay. And number two, please, Raven. By requesting only half the normal amount of chocolate be put in his chocolate martinis. See, really, mm. you're giving up something, mm. you know? Really That's real home front stuff. That's a sacrifice. The, my own personal rationing, is that what's going on? Yes, there? send the rest of the kids. Wow. Okay, here we are at the end of this road. Okay, number please. one reason, please, Raven. Okay, by offering to keep the queen mom, quote-unquote, company while the king... Was at the front. Right, would you do that? Definitely. Would you? Yeah. King is dallying around, and I'm with the queen. Right. Queen mom, his yeah. wife. Queen mom. Queen mom. Yeah. Never Even met a better. gin. <laughs> yeah. Never met a gin and tonic she didn't the like. Queen mom. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Well, here we go. We'll uh, sweeten that baby up. So here we are. World War II trivia contest part two. Why don't we take a um, commercial break now, and we'll be back with the game. You're listening to Mac Maloney's Military X Files show here on the Distant Thunder Radio Network. We'll be right back after this. Do you know where the world's most secret bases are located? Do you know what spooky action at a distance means? Is there a conspiracy by aliens to prevent us from conquering space? And where is the best place in the United States to see a real UFO? 
Find the answers to all these questions and more in Mac Maloney's new book, Mac Maloney's Haunted Universe. Visit places you never knew existed, the Phantom Tunnels of Tokyo, the UFO Trail in South America, Ong's Hat, and the very mysterious M Triangle. Mac Maloney's Haunted Universe contains hundreds of reports on ghosts, haunted planes and ships, weird celebrity deaths, mysterious sounds, and a breakdown of every monster in America, state by state. You've heard him talk about it on the radio. Now, get all of Mac's paranormal research in one large volume. Mac Maloney's Haunted Universe, with a forward by the very famous Juan Juan. On sale now in your local bookstore or on Amazon.com. X-Files show here on the Distant Thunder Radio Network. This is Mac Maloney. The entire gang is here, and we are here to play um, the second edition of the World War II Trivia Contest. have a very cool prize for a lucky listener uh, who will be picked by the winner of the game out of the Magic Fishbowl. Uh, to uh, enter the contest, just go to MacMaloney.com, hit contact, send us an email, and uh, your name will go into the Magic Fishbowl. Now, I'm going to turn this over to um, our good friend Phil O'Vaines, who is the um, president, past president of uh, Winning Moves, which is the company that makes um, a lot of different versions of Risk, Monopoly, uh, Sorry, Shoots and Ladders, Rubik's Cube, the works. Uh, Phil, thank you for uh, donating the prize uh, tonight and also being on Master of Ceremonies. Do you want to just tell everyone the rules, please? Certainly. That's quiz that uh, the four players will compete in has 10 questions. If need be, if, uh, we will also have a tiebreaker. Many of the questions are numerical answers. The player whose numerical answer is closest to the actual is going to score. So if I ask a question and a number is uh, requested for an answer, the players do not have to hit it exactly. Uh, they simply need to try to be the closest player to the actual on either end, either above or below. In the remote event that the actual answer is guessed, that player will score a bonus point. Each correct answer is worth one point. The answers that are verbal are brief. So there is not a lot of writing that need to be done. After I ask each question, I'll allow a reasonable amount of time for the four players to contemplate and write down their answer. And while this is happening, uh, we just ask that no discussion take place that would influence the players and their answers. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I, in no particular order, I will ask the four players one by one to reveal their answers, and then we'll determine who scored if anyone scored for that particular question. Let me, introduce, let me introduce the players. Uh, Tony Cisneros, a good friend from Alp Ventures Tours. Tony, you ready tonight? I'm ready. I'm fired up. Okay. Let's do this. Tony runs a company that um, brings people over to European battle 
uh, sites, tours. Sounds very cool. I'd love to do it sometime, Tony. Thanks for joining us. Also, uh, another player, Gary Olson, very famous Hollywood author. Gary, you ready? Yeah, now these uh, questions are all about World War II movies, correct? World War II, my friend. You missed the memo. Same thing. <laughs> Same thing. Oh, okay. I well, not the ma many of them have been portrayed in movies, so you might have a head start. You'll be okay. <laughs> also playing is uh, our good friend Jim Frankel down there in Nashville. Jim, you ready? As ready as I'm going to be. You know, what I want to know is, Tony, you know, when you take people on tours of World War II sites, are you taking them to the time that they happened? That's even better. Yeah, he doesn't have a time uh, machine. I but. certainly um, try to do that, you know, take them, take them back to, um, you know, try to paint the picture and, and give them as much information to, uh, to, to bring them to that place. Yeah, try cool. to do that. That's no, I cool. meant time travel. Really? Yeah. Oh, no, oh, time travel. That's next year. <laughs> um, haven't, haven't figured that much one out yet. <laughs> I haven't figured that one out yet. Wow. But but just going there was time travel enough. Yeah, that's true. Oh, How about I got, think so. I having think so. got a few of these, Absolutely. yeah. And then the uh, fourth player is uh, myself, Mag Maloney. So, okay, I, I guess we're all ready, Phil, so let's go. Question okay. number one. All right. Uh, the first question has a numerical answer. To the nearest hundred, how many Allied merchant vessels did the Germans sink during World War II. And of course, the Germans sank them mainly with U-boats, but also with surface raiders. Mm -hmm. So again, I'll repeat the question. How many Allied merchant vessels were sunk by the German Navy during World War II? To the nearest hundred. Mm. And remember, the Battle of the Atlantic was the longest battle of the war. It ran from the fall of 1939, literally through the end of April 1945. Okay, I'm ready. Okay, does everybody have an answer? Yeah. Okay, let's start with Tony. What did you say, Tony? Uh, I said 6,800. 6,800. Uh, okay. Mac, how about you? I said 4,200. 4,200. Jim? I said 1,300. Okay, and finally, we yeah. have... Gary. Gary. I'm going to go low. I'm going to go 500. Mm. Okay. okay, the actual answer is 3,500. Mm. Mac scores the point. Whoa, Mackie. Good job, Mac. Yeah. Okay. All right, wow, that was a... Okay. 3,500 ships, and you know, the average tonnage of the ships back then, I think, was around 5,000 tons. Mm -hmm. So you can see that they sank seven over 17 million tons Oops. of shipping. Wow. Wow. And we still won. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. The next question by design is related, and that is how many warships did the German Navy sink? Wow. And before you answer this, I'll say that. You know, the German Navy primarily relied on U-boats, and it had four battleships and three pocket battleships, which was basically the entirety of their surface fleet. Most of the time, they were bottled up in Norwegian waters and couldn't go out and raid. Uh, the surface raiders, the smaller ones, were actually at sea when the war began, and they were somewhat effective. So remember, the German Navy only had seven surface ships and they had a whole lot of U-boats during the war. Right. So 
in addition to all those merchant vessels, how many British and American warships did they sink? This would be a naval vessel, not a cargo vessel. I changed my answer at the last moment. Okay. Okay. Does everyone have an answer? Yeah. Yes. Yep. Okay, Jim, we'll start with you. 72. 72, says Jim. Gary? Boy, I wrote 75. Ooh. Wow. Okay. Tony? 4,500. How many? Oh, 4,500. That's a pretty huge Navy. That is. <laughs> yeah. And uh, finally, Mac? I'm going to say 200. Or, uh, you said 200? 200, yep. Yeah, well, Mac, you're on a roll because the actual number was 175. Wow. Which, by the way, when, when I looked that up, I was astounded by that because, you know, uh, between destroyers, cruisers, battleships, and aircraft carriers, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a Navy that has a couple of hundred of those is a pretty big sized Navy. So, yeah, right. Yep. Uh, the Germans had good luck sinking warships that primarily were escorting the convoys of merchant ships. Sure, yeah. Okay, question number three is, is a name. What was the name of the bridge spanning the Rhine at Remagen that was captured by the Allies on March the 7th, 1945? The name of the bridge. Actually, yeah. In German, this would have been a very famous name. It wasn't the Hitler Bridge. Uh, <laughs> wow. We all know that one bridge was left intact and it was captured by the Allies mm -hmm. on March the 7th, 1945. I'll give you one hint. He was a famous German general, not from World War II. Okay. <clears throat> okay, well, so this tough. may stump you, but... Are we all set with some yes. some yeah. guess? Yes. Sure. Okay. All right. Uh, Gary, what do you think? Yeah, my first answer was a bridge too far because it was too far to blow <laughs> up. But, uh, That's coming in another question. Okay. And, they, and then you said the, uh, the general. I'm going to go with Hindenburg. Okay, that's close. That might be worth a half a point. We'll see. Ooh. Wow. Wow. Uh, Mac? Um. I got no idea. I just wrote down Heinz something. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, Tony? It's the Ludendorff Brook, the Ludendorff Bridge. Damn. That is absolutely correct. And uh, is it Jim who's left? Yep. Yeah, I, I had no clue. I said the Kaiser Bridge, which is obviously wrong. Okay. Well, I, uh, I'm on a roll with the Kaiser yeah, Bridge. It, it, oh. it, it is the Ludendorff Bridge, and Ludendorff and Hindenburg, of course, were the two big military leaders in World War I. And the next question is also related. Tony Now, this, this particular bridge, the Ludendorff Bridge, uh, the Germans attempted to blow it. 
before the Americans could cross. But interestingly, they didn't have military grade black powder in that area. They literally raided hardware stores for commercial grade black powder to try to blow it. And it wasn't powerful enough. So the bridge suffered some damage. The allies between March 8th and March, and pardon me, beginning on March 8th, a number of allied troops, mainly Americans, began to cross that bridge and the Germans did everything they could to bomb it and try to collapse it. Now here's the question, it's a numerical question. How many days did the bridge survive before it collapsed? Remember, this is the first intact bridge over the Rhine. It was super critical to be able to uh, pour in the Germany and establish a bridgehead. The Germans really wanted to knock it down. But how many days did it survive before it eventually collapsed? Okay. Put a little music in there. All right. Okay. Okay. So... Uh, Let's start with Tony. What do you think, Tony? Um, it's uh, close to 11, I think. Okay, Tony says 11. Mac, what do you say? 17. 17. Gary, what would you guess? I think I read this. I think it's uh, 15 days. 15. And finally, Jim. I had 11. Well, that means we have a tie because the actual number of days was 10. So, Jim and Tony, this is question number four. Jim and Tony both score. Now, the tragedy was that when the bridge collapsed, there were over 100 American soldiers on the bridge. Mm -hmm. 33 of them died in the collapse, and I think 68 were, were wounded, you know, to some degree or another. I should just, uh, let me just put in that there is a movie called, and Gary knows this, it's called The Battle of Remagen, I think. And That's right. If you see it, I know Robert Vaughn is in it. There's a number of, um, you know, kind of Hollywood stars in it. But what they did, if you watch this movie, is the most realistic uh, war scenes of things blowing up. And what it was, it was actually filmed, I believe, in Czechoslovakia during the Soviet era. They they were going to destroy this town anyway, so they allowed this Hollywood movie unit to come in and and film these buildings actually being destroyed. So when you see it, it's not special wow. effects. They're actually being destroyed. The Bridge of Remagen. Wow, that's cool. yeah. The Bridge of Remagen is the name of that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so do you want to just do the scores now, okay. Raven? Raven, you want to do the scores, Raven? Her microphone is on. Absolutely. Okay. So, okay. I have Mac and Tony tied with two. I have Jim with one, and I have Gary at zero. Oh, sorry. I thought I got a half point on that. Yeah, half point. Oh, was that a half a point? Jim well, no, it, it would have been a half a point if no one guessed Ludendorff. Oh, okay. Okay. But now but now we get to yes, we do. Thanks very much, Here Raven. we go. Now we get to a question that certainly was um, portrayed in the movie. And it's the last of the bridge questions, I can assure you, for the night. Question five. Where was a bridge too far? located during Operation Mark Market Garden. So what was the name of the town? You don't need to get the country. I'll certainly give it the country. You may know it. But where was the location of a bridge too far during Operation Market Garden? I'm good. 
Good. Okay. Okay, Tony, let's start with you. Uh, Arnhem, Holland, Arnhem, Netherlands. Oh, Arnhem is absolutely correct. Arnhem, Netherlands. Gary? Uh, I was going to say Baston because I've been there and it's a great town. Yep, I would have <laughs> been there too. But no bridge there of no consequence. <laughs> <laughs> Jim, Jim, what did you say? Tap and Z. Tap and Z is a good one. It's, it's a stretch at least. They took that over. <laughs> a long bridge, you know. Yeah. yeah. And finally, Mac. Yeah, Arnhem in Holland. Okay. So for question five, Tony and Mac each get a point. Question number six. Now we shift um, gears, and this is a Air Force question. What city was the target of the deadliest air attack in history? Is deadliest as in like the amount of people killed? The most, yes. In fact, it's a good okay. clarification. Okay. Deadliest means that the attack that killed at the time the most people. Okay. Okay. Uh, let's start with Jim this time. Hiroshima. Okay, yes. Tony. Uh, that's a tough one. Um, and um, I'm thinking it was a, a between Stalingrad and Hamburg. I'm gonna go for Hamburg, July of 43. That was pretty nasty. Mac? Dresden. Dresden, that's awfully nasty too. And finally, Gary. I'm gonna uh, go to the Pacific and say Tokyo. All right, Gary, you are absolutely correct, and you're Gary. on the board. Damn. On March the 9th, 1945, Curtis LeMay sent over 300 B-29s filled with incendiaries to firebomb Tokyo. 100,000 or more people died in that one night. I think the Hiroshima attack was 70 or 80,000. Yeah, right, 80. Uh, yep. Yeah, and many times that amount were injured. The the intensity of the fire was so great that the rivers in Tokyo boiled mm. and telephone poles lit up like candles. Wow. It was, yeah, wow. it was, it was horrendous. Yeah, firebombing was, uh, it sounds weird, but it killed more people than an atomic bomb. Yeah. Very, very odd. Question seven, where was the largest tank battle in history? And of course, by history, that means World War II. And, mm -hmm. But it still is in history. Music, music, music. Everybody have an answer? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Mac, we start with you. Kursk, the Battle of Kursk. The Battle of Kursk, Russia. Okay, Gary? I was going to say the uh, the African city that Patton um, was brought in, Kizling, something like that. Excuse my French. Castle Ring. Okay. Jim? Argon. Argon. And finally, Tony. Uh, I had Kursk, Prokhorovka, uh, Russia. Well, first, uh, Kursk is correct. It was a... It, the 1943 long-anticipated spring battle that finally got off in July to August involved 6,000 tanks on both the uh, Russian and the German side. And just 
to back up a little bit, uh, the horrendous defeat at Stalingrad, which was echoed earlier by Raven, uh, had basically been concluded early in 1943. And when the uh, spring thaw occurred, the Germans, having retreated from Stalingrad, realized that the Russians had exposed themselves in a big salient around this town called Kursk. And they decided that they would pinch it off, surround the Russians, and resume their offensive, basically making up for Stalingrad. However, Russian intelligence was very good. They knew the Germans were coming. They were prepared in depth. And the Germans lost that battle. And they had never had another offensive to speak of again in the, in the Soviet Union. Wow. Incredible. We should just okay. remind everyone you're listening to Mac Maloney's Military X-Files show here on the Distant Thunder Radio Network. We're in the middle of the second edition of World War II Trivia Contest. Okay, let's go. All right. Question number eight. What was Operation Dragoon? Hmm. I'll, I'll give you one hint. My father was part of it. I'm sure that gave it away. <laughs> hmm. Operation Dragoon. Oh, that last one was Tony. Was there another person that got a point? On and Mac. And Mac. Tony and Mac. Mac. Okay. I knew I missed someone. Sorry, Mac. And I'll give you one more hint. It occurred after D-Day. Okay. Okay, so let's start with Tony on this one. Uh, Operation Dragoon was the uh, the Allied landings on the south coast of France. Okay, Mac, what do you say? Yep, the invasion of southern France. Okay, Jim? I was wrong. I said Italy. Close. Gary? No, that's what I had too, was southern France landing soon after D-Day. Okay, well, three of our players each scored on that one. And the answer was, or the date was the 15th of August, 1944. Uh, what many people don't know is that uh, several operatives of the Special Operations Executive and the OSS, primarily women, did a significant amount of damage to the German rear. So that by the time this invasion took place, the German supply lines were cut, a lot of their bridges were out, a lot of their rear units were trapped or captured, so they couldn't get to southern France to reinforce the raid. And as a result, the um, the the more or well, the race up the Rhone River was almost unimpaired. Mm -hmm. Okay, now we get to a, a question that I found personally to be the answer really interesting. Prior to D-Day, including the ill-fated Dieppe attack on 19th August of 42, how many landings and commando raids had been launched and aborted, in other words, not all of them happened, against the Germans' Atlantic Wall? Now, the Atlantic Wall was the name given, I think mainly by the press, for all the German defenses starting in northern Norway, going down into, you know, Belgium and the Netherlands mm -hmm. and along the French coast to the Spanish border. That was the so-called Atlantic Wall. We all know that the invasion of the Atlantic Wall was at D-Day. But prior to D-Day, how many times did the Allies have landings and commando raids um, including those that were aborted against the Atlantic Wall. 
And it's a number. Whoever comes closest will score. Music, 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 music. Man. Okay, everybody. Yep. Yeah. Okay, Gary. What do you What do you think, Gary? No, that, that's that's interesting because I just heard about the Canadian uh, Army doing that, yep. nineteen forty-two. But I, I'll just take a number and, and out of the hat and say twenty-eight. Twenty-eight, Jim. I'm going low. Twelve. Tony. I'm going lower than that. Six. Mac. I'm going to go lower than that. Three. Gary is the winner. Oh, man. Surprisingly, and this floored me. This has absolutely floored me when I found the answer. 58. Really? Wow. wow. Yeah, wow. who would have guessed that 58 times we landed in France or the Low Countries or in Norway, conducted raids. Sometimes they stayed for a while before they cleared out. Mm -hmm. But uh, 58. Wow. I, I know uh, NAVAC is one of them, and I know at one point the— British actually tried to ram a destroyer into the sub pens in France. Yeah, yeah. And uh, then yeah. there was one where they took over a radar site, I think, at one point. But I had no idea it was that high of a number. Me neither. This, I, I never would have guessed that. That's amazing. Okay. Now, the last one is also a numerical question, and it's, uh, it's intended to show you just how impressive was our production capacity during World War II. How many military aircraft were produced in the United States during World War II? And that means, you know, from the time of Pearl Harbor until the German surrender on May 8, 1945. How many military aircraft were produced in the U.S. during that period of time? It's a tough one. I'll give you one hint, and the hint is this. When the war started and Franklin Roosevelt announced what the goals of the United States were in producing tanks and ships and aircraft, he set the goal for 42, 43, 44, however long it took, of 50,000 planes a year. Now, that was the goal, and the war went on for three and a half years. Uh, after the U.S. started. So the question is, how many planes were produced during that three-and-a-half-year period? Okay, everybody have a number? Yep. Yep. Okay, Jim, let's start with you. 195,000. 195 is the first answer. We go to Tony. Uh, 60,000. 60,000. We go to Mac. 110,000. 110. And finally, Gary. I'm going big. I'm going 500,000. All right. Now, this is interesting. Wait, I get it for you. So, Gary, you say 500,000. Okay. And, Jim, you said 195. Okay. Mm -hmm. The answer is rather astounding. It's not 500,000, but it is. 350,000. Wow. Now think about this. Man. Roosevelt's goal was basically 175,000. They doubled the goal. Um, so, Jim, you will score on that one because you're the closest. You are off by 155. Oh, right, take that back. Take that back. You know what? We're going to call this a tie because you're both so close. You're both about 150 over. So, we're going to give Gary a point and we're going to give Jim a point. 
And now, since that was question 10, Raven, do you want to officially add up the scores? Absolutely. Um, okay, so I have Mac and Tony both tied at five, and I have Gary at four and Jim at two. All right, so now that we have five each, uh, I do have a tiebreaker. Uh, not that we need a tiebreaker because Tony and Mac are going to go into the second round, but yes. just to see who might be a little sharper. Okay. Uh, the tiebreaker is while the U.S. produced 350,000 uh, planes, how many did the Germans produce? Can we just yell out answers? I mean, uh, that's also a really tough question because they were that's at it. That's tough, yeah. They were at it longer. Yeah, you could both throw out it. Yeah. yeah. Because it's not going to—it's not going to yeah. matter. You're both in the final. So, uh, Tony, what do you think? Uh, I, I'd say two hundred thousand. Two hundred thousand. And what do you say, Mac? I was going to say about the same thing, about two hundred thousand. Okay. Well, the Who's answer is—the answer is lower. It's one hundred and twenty thousand. But uh, oh, really, wow. Yeah. Wow. But the problem for the Germans was not aircraft production. The problem it was, was pilots. Pilots and and fuel. Yes, right. Once yeah. we started to bomb their synthetic fuel plants and we took out Poesti, they really couldn't afford to spend much time training pilots because they didn't have the gas for it, and they had to be very careful whenever they set a plane up. Wow, wow, that's cool. So listen, that's the first um, edition of, uh, I mean, the first part of the World War II trivia contest tonight. It looks like Tony and I are going on to the finals. Tony, <laughs> get ready, Tony. Get ready. All right. Okay. okay so now for for Jim and for Gary, we need a lot of cheerleading. Here. Cheerleading. Let's go. Let's give Melania's hand. You guys did a great job. There you go. Excellent. Everybody did great. Right, there you go. So you guys got more answers than I would have. That's for hard. Why don't we take a uh, commercial break now? Take a quick break. You're listening to Mac Maloney's Military Exile Show here on Be right the right back. Yep. Here on the Are Distant you? Thunder Radio Network, and um, we'll be right back after this. UFOs are found in Renaissance art, on ancient coins, and etched on cave walls. They are even reported in the Bible. But more surprising is when UFOs are seen the most in times of war. Through centuries, thousands of UFO sightings have been made by high-ranking officials, military pilots, and ordinary soldiers. Often, these fantastic appearances occur at the height of great battles. From World War I to D-Day to Korea, Vietnam, and beyond, military investigators are baffled. Why do UFO sightings spike so drastically during wartime? Could it be mistaken aircraft? Or is someone, or something, looking in on us? In UFOs in wartime, what they didn't want you to know, Mac Maloney chronicles centuries of these incredible sightings and tries to solve the puzzle of why so many UFOs are seen while humanity is at war. Read about the scare ships, the ghost planes, and the ghost rockets, alien giants in the jungles of Vietnam, UFOs controlling our ICBM bases, dogfights with flying saucers during the Gulf War, and more. 300 pages of unbelievable stories, along with many startling photographs. That's UFOs in Wartime, What They Didn't Want You to Know, by Mac Maloney. On sale at your local bookstore or on Amazon.com.
Welcome back, everyone, to Mac Maloney's Military Exiles show here on the Distant Thunder Radio Network. This is Macaroni. What a show we have for you tonight. This is uh, version two of our World War II trivia contest. We're halfway through it. Just want to remind everyone that the lucky winner is actually playing for uh, one of our listeners. So go to MacMaloney.com, hit the contact button, send us an email. Send us an email. We'll put your name into the Magic Fishbowl. And we'll pick it out, and um, you know uh, you will be the lucky winner. Phil, please, Phil or Beans, tell us what is the winner going to win this time? The winner this time is going to win the authentic reproduction of the beautiful 1959 original Risk game, uh, including all those lovely polished wooden armies. Nice. Okay, I should just introduce the uh, people who are playing tonight. Tony Cisneros, our good friend from Alp Ventures Tours. Tony, you look rev. Hey, you, you and I are going to I'm the final. Ready. You and I are going to the final. So I'm sorry. No mercy there, brother, okay? I'm, I'm ready for okay. you, brother. Jim Frankel is uh, with us. Jim, very famous agent down in Nashville. You're now, you're now a cheerleader, Jim. Okay, good. I am cheering. Okay. Yay. All uh, right. Very famous author Gary Olson is also in the shadows there, Gary. Yeah, I get the big L on my forehead for loser because I didn't make the final. That's okay. But but you were close. You, you were, were close. very close, Gary. You were close. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And uh, also, Mackie is playing. Juan Juan is here. Juani's here. Ray, Ray, and oh, wow, holy cow. Yeah, Raven is here. I can hardly say her name. Hello. And uh, also, Switchy's here. So before we get back into the game, let's go to the um, thank you for waving those pom poms. Switchy. Switch on uh, the, the most. The cheerleaders behind me. The mo yeah, I see that. And that looks like it should be blotted out there. Is that a. <laughs> uh, um, Switch, everyone wants to know what did you have for breakfast this morning? <laughs> morning, I had the old standard sugar frosted flakes. Okay. But yesterday, yes. yesterday was a breakfast. Oh. What was it? It was a French toast slam at Denny's Diner. Oh, French man. toast syrup, Whoa. butter, scrambled eggs, yes. two sausage, two bacon, hot black coffee. Oh, my but that goodness. That was yesterday. Wow, wow. That's the grand slam, right? That grand last, slam French toast. That will yeah. last you for a while. Holy cow. Good for you, Switch. You didn't disappoint. Okay, Frosted, frosted Flakes this morning. Whole milk. Yes. Whole milk. Whole milk? Two percent. Two percent. Good. Watch your heart. Good. Super. Okay. Okay. So why don't we get to uh, the second uh, part of our World War II trivia contest tonight. It's me and Tony Cineros. Let's go. Okay. Let's do this. <clears throat> All right. For the first question of round two, um, we actually were talking a little bit about Massachusetts and the perfect storm and the movie prior to the break. It so happens that the first question in this round pertains to the battleship, the USS Massachusetts. Now, this was among the first battleships, new battleships that were launched uh, during the war. Uh, the United States entered the war with a lot of battleships that were quite old. Uh, all the ones at Pearl Harbor, for example, dated from around World War One. Mm -hmm. But the, the Massachusetts was one of the new, uh, very fast battleships, and it was launched in 1942. And it participated in several amphibious invasions in the Pacific against the Japanese during the remainder of the war. But, and here's the question, where 
did it see its first action? And the only hint that I'm going to give you here is that during the uh, first round of the game, one of the players mentioned, got pretty close to mentioning where this particular battleship saw its first action. It was unintended, but he did get close. Hmm. I'm ready. Tony's sweating. I can see it. I'm sweating. Okay. <laughs> Pacific is well, not my strong area. Okay. So, Mac, what do you think? I'm going to say is the raid on Dieppe. Dieppe. Okay. And, Tony, what do you say? Uh, well, before I answer that, didn't, didn't Phil, did you say that it was the Pacific or did you not clarify? No, no. No, all I said was that it participated in several amphibious invasions in the Pacific against the Japanese. Okay. But, okay. but but where did it see its first action? Okay, got it. Um... Well, I wrote down Guam, but that, that wouldn't make sense. No, it wouldn't. You guys, you um... guys, I'll tell you what, I'm gonna give you guys another chance each okay. because it's not in the Pacific. Okay. And it's, and it's not Dieppe. Dieppe was a British-Canadian affair. Okay. So I'll give you each one more chance with the clues that were just given. Mac, what would you like to say? I mean, can I just say the Battle of the Atlantic? Or is that too general? That's what I was going to say. Sure, you can say that. Yeah, Battle yeah. of the Atlantic. That's not too general? No, that, that's good. And that would be a reasonable answer. Tony, what um, would you like to yeah, say? Yeah, I would say the same. Battle okay. of the Atlantic. Well, it's a good answer, but it's wrong. Oh. The answer okay. is <clears throat> it supported the American invasion against the Free French at Casablanca oh, on 6 November man. 1942. Damn. Good um, question. Good question. Where, and, and this actually was my dad's inaugural experience in World War II was landing at Casablanca. Uh, he told me when I was young, he remembers when Roosevelt and Churchill arrived. Uh, because he was on guard duty that day. Mm. And this is where George Patton also landed with his, there were three striking forces. Patton was in charge of the landing at Casablanca. And of course, one of the things that always dumbfounds me is that the free French uh, actually were on the sides of the Germans. And so right. they were mm -hmm. given the opportunity to surrender without bloodshed, but they didn't. Yep. They fought back. Yep. Massachusetts took some damage in that particular battle. It came back to the States, it got repaired, and then it spent the rest of the war in the Pacific. Wow, great question. Okay, now, this next one is pretty cool. And I would think if Gary was playing, that he would have an edge on this one. Which of these celebrities did not serve in the US Armed Forces during World War II? And I'm gonna give you five names. Of the five, only one did not serve. Okay. Clark Gable. Jimmy Stewart, John Wayne, Mel Brooks, or Johnny Carson? It's Gable, Stewart, Wayne, Brooks, or Carson. One did not serve. Music, music, music. Okay, Mac, what do you think? John Wayne. What do you say, Tony? Uh, I think it's Johnny Carson, and I should know this, but I don't. Well, Mac, Mac gets the point because the answer really? is John Wayne. Yes. 
Mr. Mr. Hero. By the way, um, Michener, Michener wrote a book about the Pacific War many years ago that I remember reading because he was in the war. And he said John Wayne did more of a disservice to the young captains and lieutenants uh, in the Pacific than anybody he could think of because in the movies, John Wayne always stood up and told his troops, come on, let's go, you know, charge. Mm. And when the captains and lieutenants emulated John Wayne, they had their heads blown off. Thank you, so, John. Thank you, John. You know, <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, that. Okay, now the next one, I'm going to give a point to the one who guesses the most of the of the answers here that are pertinent. The three Andrews sisters entertained troops extensively during World War II. What was their first names? Remember, we were talking about the Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy before we began. Yeah. Well, these, that was the Andrews sisters who made that song famous. What, and there were three of them, I'll tell you that much. So what were their three first names? Wow, music, music, and, and music. I'm, I'm just gonna ask for the sake of asking, Jim and Gary, do you think you know what they are? You don't don't say anything, but do you think you know their names? I know maybe one. Okay, mm. Gary. No, we have no Gary. No, okay, let's go with Mac first. What do you think the three verse names are? No idea. Trixie, Dixie, and Dixie. <laughs> and, and and Pixie. Okay. Pixie. Tony, what do you think? Uh, that's another one I should know, Phil, and um, I'm also just totally guessing in the dark here, but Marie, I have Marie, Josephine, and Susan. Okay, well, the answer is the, the Laverne, oh. which is not unusual, but Laverne, uh, Andrews, Maxine Andrews, oh. and the youngest one had the most ordinary name, Patty. It's Patty Andrews. Who I knows? was way off. Oh, well. Yeah. <laughs> I thought Doreen. No, no, uh, I don't. <laughs> okay, well. That was a tough one. Yeah, I've got one more that's that's sort of entertainment related. Uh, if you think about this, you should get this answer. Which actress recording star recorded songs in German for the OSS propaganda unit to broadcast to German troops? So this actress recording star recorded songs in German because the OSS felt that this particular recording star recorded songs that were broadcast to German troops. It would make them yearn for home and perhaps lower their morale. And she's okay. pretty well known. What do you think her name is? <clears throat> music, music, music. Okay, Mac, I'll again ask you what you think first. Raven McRaven. No, 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 I'm sorry, no. Um, it's Marlena Dietrich. Right. And That's what my guess. Yeah. And what do you say, Tony? I was going to say Marlena Dietrich. Okay, yeah. you, you each get a point that is uh, that's here. Now, she was, um, she did leave German. She did leave her native Germany prior to World War II. She was, uh, she knew that Hitler was bad news and she volunteered to do anything she could to help the Allied cause. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Wow. okay. Now the, the next one we get to Winston Churchill and Franklin Roosevelt. 
What not-so-clever code name did Winston Churchill adopt when in communication with Franklin Roosevelt? And by communication, that meant, you know, a coded message or a message, not necessarily when they spoke on the, this grammar, but what not-so-clever code name did Winston Churchill adopt when communicating and writing with Franklin Roosevelt? I know this. Tony, do you have an idea? I don't. I don't Mac? know. Okay, Mac? Um, is it something like your British cousin? Okay. And who, nah. who's, and who said, I know this? Jim. I did. It's fa former naval person. Absolutely. Oh, we got to give Jim a point on that. It, it's, yeah. it, it's, it's rather a name because, you know, yeah, he really. George of the Admiral, so former naval person. I don't, yeah, think the really. Germans, I don't think the Germans would have too much trouble with yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> former naval person. Yeah. That's funny. Yes. It's one of the weirdest things. Yeah. yeah. All right. Okay, the next next one is also President Roosevelt. President Roosevelt may well have had an affair with an influential European princess during World War II. She was a royal of what country? And there was just a TV series all about this. I'll give you a hint on PBS. I know that one. So the, so, so <laughs> the answer is, so oh, the wow. answer is which country was she a royal of? Hmm. I'll answer if nobody knows. Okay. Tony, any idea? I'm going to guess Belgium. That's a good guess. Uh, Mac? I'm going to guess Holland. I have an idea. Very close, but we're, we're going to let Juan Juan provide the answer. Norway. Right. Her Son name was Princess Martha, and after the Germans... Marta. 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 Well, yeah, I'm sorry. I have it more. Come on, just, get it right. Yeah, yeah, I read it wrong. Okay. I, li oh, I listen with headphones. I get all the nuances. Okay, PBS. All right, right. <laughs> Princess Marta. We would call it Martha. The show anyway. is called Atlantic Crossing. Right. So right. when when Norway was overrun by the Germans, and by the way, all the Germans had to do was capture the key ports in the right. capital, Oslo, the royal family fled to England, and it was decided that Princess Marta would go to the U.S. and represent the Norwegians in exiles. And uh, she became uh, close to President Roosevelt. And I'll I won't say. spoil it in case you want to watch the series. It's excellent. Yeah, it really, really was. Yeah. Uh, if, How if, close was she? Really close. Well, really or, close. Uh, I, I looked it up, and Roosevelt's son said he believes the the affair was consummated. So. Ooh, yeah. Nice. Now here's the tragedy: her husband in, of in course, his car. Yeah, and we're not we're not going to say anything more because you guys may want to watch. It. Okay. It's, it's really good. Yeah. Next question. On the 18th of April, 1943, Admiral. Isoroku Yamamoto was shot down and killed while on a morale-boosting flight to the Solomon Islands. Uh, now, Yamamoto was the top admiral in Japan. He was the admiral who organized the attack on Pearl Harbor uh, because he knew from having gone to school, I think, at, was it Harvard? Yes, Harvard, yep. He knew that once the U.S. woke up, Japan was doomed. So the only way they could win a war against the U.S. was a surprise attack to wipe out the fleet, uh, a lot of early victories, and then the, the Americans might actually come to the negotiating table. But Yamamoto was clearly the most visible and most prestigious person in the eyes of the Japanese Navy. And thanks to 
uh, the code breakers who broke the Japanese naval code. They knew he was going to go on this mission, um, even though his advisors said, you know, it's pretty dangerous. You're going to be flying over, you know, a lot of territory where we really can't provide support. Uh, he was shot down and killed. His plane crashed in a uh, in a jungle clear in a jungle. Uh, so the question is now that you know this, what type of American aircraft had to be used to reach and shoot down Yamamoto? And I'll just give you one hit. It had to be a fighter plane, it had to be a long distance fighter. And it was very well known. And all I'm looking for is either the numerical designation or its nickname. What type of plane was used to shoot down Yamamoto? Music, music, music. And this plane appeared both in, it appeared in Europe, in the European theater, as well as the Pacific theater, but it really was outstanding in the Pacific theater. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's go to Mac. P-38 Lightning. What do you think? P-38 Lightning. Okay, what do you, and what do you say, Tony? P-51. Okay, the answer is the Lightning. And the Lightning was a twin engine plane. If you carried extra fuel tanks, it could fly a long uh, distance. Uh, Yamamoto was escorted by six zeros, and there was, and he was in a, a bomber, a two engine bomber, and there was a second bomber just in case they had to confuse the enemy as to which one he was in. Uh, it was attacked by 16 P 38s, and the first guy in immediately shot down Yamamoto and then shot down the other bomber. So uh, that was that. Um, now, this actually, this question actually, I, I have to do this because the answer is so good for this one. There's a bonus part of this one. And the bonus, I'm going to let you both go for an extra point here. Uh, during the, the Pearl Harbor surprise attacks, the Japanese destroyed 189 American planes on the ground and, and damaged far more, 189 mainly on the ground and damaged far more. 350 Japanese planes took place in the two waves of that surprise attack. And the answer is very simple. How many Japanese planes were shot down? Remember, they destroyed in the air or on the ground 189 American planes plus a lot more damage. The question is, how many Japanese planes did we manage to shoot down during the Pearl Harbor attack? Boy, that's a question. Yeah. Well, we only got two questions to go after this. Okay. So, all right, Tony, do you have an answer? Uh, six. Six, what do you say, Mac? 22. Well, Mac is uh, closer. The answer is 29. Wow. The answer, it breaks down as this. In the first wave, we only got nine. In the second wave, 20. And believe it or not, although a third wave would have been devastating if it took place and it wiped out the harbor facilities like the oil storage tanks and yep. the dry docks and whatnot, the commander of the Japanese uh, fleet decided against it because while 29 had been shot down, about 60 had been damaged, and he was reluctant to put them back in the air. So the Japanese skedaddled without the, the third wave, which would have been big mistake. Set us back probably six months. Right. Yeah, big mistake. Right. Okay. Uh, let's, let's just um, now, Phil. Let me just uh, Phil. Let me just remind everyone yeah. listening to Mac Maloney's Military Expo show. 
Here on the Distant Thunder Radio Network, we're in the middle of our second edition of the World War II Trivia Contest. We're in the final round where we are playing for a lucky listener. So please go to MacMaloney.com, hit the contact button, get your name in the magic fishbowl, and we'll be picking you out in a future show to win a very cool um, vintage edition of the Game of Risk. Excellent. Okay, Phil. Okay. Um, this next question, I'm going to give you three possible answers because it's remote, but it's interesting. What Vichy French city in Africa was attacked by the Allies in September of 1940? Now, I'll point out September of 1940 is one year after the Germans began World War II, and there was a great deal of of desire between Charles de Gaulle, who was leading the Free French out of London, and for that matter, Churchill, to do something well prior to the invasion of North Africa, which couldn't take place until, as we know, November of 42. So they decided they just had to do something to smarten up the Vichy French. And of course, the French had a lot of African colonies. So the question is, which Vichy French city in Africa was attacked by the Allies in September of 1940. Now, this is not the US, we're not in the war yet. The answers are Brazzaville, Ab Abadean, or Dakar. Brazzaville, Abadean, or Dakar. This was pretty much a Charles de Gaulle incentive. Mm. So, uh, Tony, which of the three do you think? Uh, I'm going to say Dakar. Okay, and Mac, what do you yeah. say? Dakar. The answer is Dakar. You each score. And by the way, the Allies lost. Okay. De Gaulle did not succeed. And he, after that, Churchill was able to calm him down for a long time. Good. Uh, now we switch to the home front and to the Soviets' uh, rather extensive uh, effort to recruit Americans as spies. The question is, how many Americans were conclusively exposed as Soviet spies via the Venona Project? Now, the Venona Project was the long-term decoding of the uh, very difficult to break uh, Russian diplomatic code. But by the time it was broken and we could go back to messages from World War II, uh, we were able to identify this number of Americans under the name of their code name, which we were able to pinpoint, who spied for the Soviet Union. How many Americans were conclusively exposed as Soviet spies? Music, music, music. Hmm. And there were more than this, but this is conclusively exposed. Right, yeah. Okay, uh, Mac, what do you say? I, I, I'm just going to say 60. It's a good number. What do you say, Tony? Uh, two dozen, 24, 25. Okay, well, those are reasonable guesses, and certainly if I didn't know, I would have said something in that vicinity, but the number is 246. Wow. wow. They knew it was more. And that's conclusive. I mean, as Jim points out, there was a lot more that we just couldn't pinpoint precisely. Right. We have good ideas who they were, but not conclusively. Wow. Okay. 24. Yeah. Yeah, that's a big number. Okay, last question. So who here. won that? Who yes. won that? Who won that uh, one? Oh, by the way, who, who was closest to that one? You, well, you, you said, what, 20-something, Matt? Yep. Mm -hmm. Or you said 60? 
No, I said 60. So you I'm get sorry. that one. Okay. Sorry. Oh, you said six. Did you say six? No, what did you say? Raven, what did he say? Uh -oh. I heard 60. 60. Six, zero. Okay. I, I, heard, I, I heard 60, yeah. Yep. Okay. All right. All right, so Matt gets a point. Okay. Okay, last question is, how did the British people reward their hero, Winston Churchill, on July 26, 1945? <laughs> how did the British people reward their hero, Winston Churchill, on July 26, 1945? Music, music, music. Okay, Tony, would you like to go first? Uh, by voting him out of office. And what do you say, Mac? Yep, they voted him out of office. Yes, absolutely right. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for nothing. Okay. That's yeah, really a trick question. Yep. Yeah. I do have a bonus question Great here. Great series about that. Yeah. But, uh, Raven, do you want to verify the scores? Please. Mac Not left like. me in the dust. Mm -hmm. yeah, I, I, I have... I have Mac at six and I have Tony at two. Oh, it's okay, Tony. Yeah, I, got, I got Tony at three. Oh, that's okay. Okay. <laughs> I don't have that, that point is worth it. Yeah, okay. So and it, yeah, now, I'm going to throw this out to anybody who just wants it. Here's the tiebreaker, which we didn't have to use. Okay. In 1943, what was Operation Mincemeat? And I will point out that in the first quiz, somebody made reference to what this was all about. So just what was Operation Mincemeat in 1943? And I will say this, it took place before, it took place after we had secured North Africa. Um, well, just, anybody's got an answer, just throw it out. Say the Sicily? Sicily. Sis yep, anybody else? Deception, particularly the deception plan um, uh, regarding the Husky landings to throw the Germans off of off of Sicily. Precisely right. Wow, Tony. Uh, they they used the corpse of a uh, of a of a nobody named uh, Glinder Michael, I think, and they disguised him as Captain William Martin with papers, and he washed the shore. Was it in Spain? And Portugal. Yeah. Portugal. Yeah. Or Portugal, Portugal. Off the, off the coast of, uh, yeah, off uh, Cadiz. Yeah, and they knew, that the, they, they knew that the uh, information that he carried would quickly get to the Nazis. Mm -hmm. And uh, they, dis they successfully disguised the actual location of the next invasion, uh, which in fact turned out to be Sicily. Yeah, right. Another place that my dad had the displeasure of having the land on. Mm. <laughs> wow. wow, well, here we go. That was... Uh... There we go. That was interesting. Um, thank you very much, Phil O'Banes, for uh, running a second version of World War II Trivia Contest. I couldn't help it, kids, but I won. So, um, please. <laughs> Good job, Mac. Yeah. Went, uh, please go to MacMaloney.com, hit the contact button, get your name into the Magic Fishbowl, and we will be picking the name of the winner um, in uh, a very f a future show. Uh, why don't we do this? Why don't we take a quick break now? We'll all be back after listening. You're listening to Mac Maloney's Military X-Files show here on the Distant Thunder Radio Network. Don't go away. It's early medieval Europe. Norse marauders are pouring down from the north. Steppe riders threaten from the east. And Moorish raiders are surging up from the south. Now, as the Vikings plan an invasion of Ireland, the country's aging king must somehow protect his nation. But who is up to the task? 
Nordic sagas tell us an obscure and unlikely hero arises to save his people. Wolf of Klontarf leaps into history as a nightmare to the Norse and avenger for the Celts. It's Vikings meets Braveheart as this legendary Irish warrior, some medieval special operations forces, and a young woman spy help the Irish king defeat the Viking invaders. It's a tale spanning 15 years and leading up to the most decisive battle of the Middle Ages. That's Wolf of Clontarf, a new novel from Thomas J. Howley, now on Amazon. X-Files show here on the Distant Thunder Radio Network. This is Mac Maloney. Wow, what a show we have for you tonight. We're talking about World War II. We just had World War II trivia contests. Now we're just going to um, talk about our favorite World War II stories, I guess, if you want to say that. Juan Juan's here. Raven is here. A good friend, Jim Frankel, is here. Um, Switchblade Steve is here. Gary Olson is here. Phil Orbanes is here. Did I get everyone? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, Tony, let's just go to you real quick. Tony, you run Alp Ventures. Can you give us the elevator pitch on what you do and how you do it? Oh, yeah. So Alp Ventures, that's uh, my tour company, and I built my company uh, doing World War II history tours over in Europe. So uh, for about the last 25 years, I've been bringing groups all across the battlefields, memorials, museums, and uh, lots of cemeteries, military cemeteries. But uh as you know, there's tons to see over there, so it uh, keeps me busy. How long How long is a tour, beginning to uh, end? The tours, yeah, the tours run anywhere from about 10 days to two weeks. Uh, that wow. tends to be kind of the sweet spot. Um, anything mm -hmm. less than that is, you know, not worth a flight over there, and sure. anything more than that is usually hard to get, you know, that time off. So. And what is the what is the number one place you go? Do you go to Normandy the whole every time? Yeah, so um, I've got uh, like six different tours that I run um, all over Europe. I've got a tour that starts in Sicily and goes up to Rome. Uh, I've got, uh, of course, Normandy to the Eagle's Nest. That's kind of the real hot route right now. Every company is offering a similar type tour, you know, Band of Brothers uh, sites. Um, and uh, but yeah, Normandy is is probably, in my opinion, the number one uh World War II Mecca, you know, for for enthusiasts in Europe because there's just uh, there's just so much to see there. It's a great starting point, you know, uh, for travels throughout Europe. You know, start in France, start in Normandy, kind of work your way across. So, and um, how can they get in touch with you? Yeah, well, I've got several websites uh, for the tours, but just WorldWarTwoTours.com with the number two. That's my main site for our history tours, World mm -hmm. War with the number two tours.com. World War Two.com. Okay. World War Two Tours.com. World War Two Tours.com. Correct. Yeah. 
Um, all one word. All one word. All written together, of yeah. Course. Okay, Phil, and uh, you were nice enough to be the master of ceremonies for our uh, trivia game earlier. Tell us a little bit about Winning Moves, your game company. Well, Winning Moves is now 26 years old. Uh, we started the company, I and three other game industry veterans, with the idea in mind that not only would we try to uh, find great new games to market, but that we would uh, bring back the classics you know, the most popular games in America, like, you know, whether it's Monopoly, Clue, Risk, Sorry, Boggle, Yahtzee, Game of Life or whatnot, and reproduce them the way they were originally, which typically was higher quality and uh, certainly the versions that most people remember playing growing up. And fortunately, we have a good relationship with Hasbro that owns both Milton Bradley and Parker Brothers, the two great American game companies in the last hundred and some years. And they have all these big titles. Mm -hmm. uh, they were gracious in licensing them thus to do these special versions. And we also make the Rubik's Cube, mm -hmm. uh, but Winnie Moose is primary known as the company that brings back the classic board games that you remember from your younger years. Can, can I ask you what the best-selling game is right now for you? Sure. Uh, it's not any of the games that I just mentioned. It's actually a young girl's game called Pretty Pretty Princess. Oh, one one has I'm not that. Sure if Raven remembers that. Really? And, and, and by the yeah. way, our second Send best... Send me a link to that one. <laughs> our second best-selling game at the moment is Twister. Oh, another favorite. Oh, yeah. Twister is a Twister. fantastic yeah. game. Yeah. I yeah. love that game. Yeah. Oh, good. I've never heard of Pretty Pretty Princess. Well, mm. it's a that game. It's a game for little <laughs> girls where they collect plastic jewelry, which they can wear during the course of the game. And of course, the whole object is to actually get the tiara to put on your head. Wow! So for little girls, this is this was so huge. I guess back in the '80s and '90s, and we wow. looked back and were just so surprised how popular. Let's it is. let's do that on the show some night. Why don't we have a? Yeah, yeah, right. No, okay. no thanks. Oh, okay. <laughs> let's do creepy crawlers. Okay. You guys yeah. remember creepy crawlers? Oh, yeah. they were so cool. Oh. Let's do those. Yeah, we're about to do Barrel of Monkeys, if you remember that one. Oh, <gasps> Barrel of Monk Barrel of Monkeys there. used to piss me off oh, really? because I would I I would get like two. And then it yeah. would just fall apart. Yeah, yeah, well, we just got permission to bring back the original, so we're going to do that. That's very cool. That's awesome. And, and, and is it winningmoves.com? Cool. Winningmoves.com? It's, so? it's winning-moves.com. Winning-moves.com. Very yeah, cool. Some, some prankster registered winning moves without the dash before we could get it. Oh, too bad. Damn. Um, so anyway, so we're just talking about World War II tonight, and, and I've you know read about World War II all my life. My father was a veteran of World War II. Um, he had his ship sank out from underneath him um, in the Pacific. Where? He, in the Pacific? It, yep, it wow. was in New Caledonia, and uh, I can I might as well tell the story. He was on a um, an internal combustion repair ship, and they were Jeez. they were um, anchored at uh, in New Caledonia. Um, they were they were in the rear of the war. They were in at the front, and um, there was an ammunition ship there and a. A Japanese airplane came along and bombed the ammunition ship and sank the four ships around it. And my father's ship was one of them. Um, he didn't talk much about it. Wow. Uh, but he was over there for four years and, um, you know, uh, came back, I'm sure, a different person. Um, the um, thing that Tony and I were, and we're just going to go around the table here, but the, Tony and I were talking off air. One thing I read today that I was um, kind of um, 
fascinated by was how many Allied, I'll throw it out, question Tony and I know, but how many Allied airmen were kept in, G in German POW camps during the war? How many Allied airmen were in German POW camps during the war? Obviously thousands. Mm -hmm. I mean, lots of thousands, I'll bet. I I think 150. At least two. I think 150,000, maybe closer really to Really that many? Wow. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> mainly British. It was, it was 100,000. Oh, really? Mainly yep. British? I yep. didn't know that. Yep. No, I think was that 100,000? 100,000, yeah. I think wow. we had, had 50,000 alone. Mm -hmm. oh, wow. What they used to do is um, with German prisoners, they would bring them to the United States, and they'd bring them out. A lot of them were out to the Midwest and the West. And they didn't really lock them up. They 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 had them doing civic projects, and they they would march them out of the camp and build roads and stuff like that. And the reason they did that is they were denazifying them. They wanted to see how Americans really did live, you know. And it was a very interesting way to kind of you know turn uh, the the brainwashing. But other than that, the only other thing um, you know I I go on all night. But when people say uh, what was the what was the n number one manufactured bomber? In World War II, and you always hear about the B-17 and everything, but actually more B-24 Liberators That's right. were manufactured than B-17s. Which was ungainly, but it actually had better performance. Mm -hmm. Right. It just didn't get the headlines. Um, hey, listen, let me throw it at Jim. Jim, what's your favorite World War II story? If I can use the favorite, what's your most interesting World War II story? Okay, well, it's, it's something, it's fiction. Uh, we were talking about astrology and Hitler before. Um, there's a novel... Um, my favorite World War II novel about astrology. It's called The Zodiac Deception. It's by Gary Chris, and it's uh, about a guy who, uh, uh, while Bill Donovan, sends over there to impersonate an astrologer and get, get in tight with the, uh, the higher-ups, you know, um, so that he could get close enough to assassinate Hitler. Um, it's a really cool novel. That's very uh, cool. It, I mean, yeah, all that sounds people interesting. Are in it. it's, it's great. Uh, it's got it's got it's got stuff that goes on in Egypt with the the deceptions uh, that of the Allies in Egypt. Um, it, it's in Paris in the in the in the sewers of Paris. It's uh, in the mountains of Germany. It's 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 an amazing book. The the Zodiac Deception. That sounds terrific. Very sounds cool. Really yeah, thank you. It's, it's a great book. It came out about five years ago. Tony, go ahead. Okay. Tony, what's your favorite? I'm just saying, I, I need to go oh, and get okay. something for my segment. I'll be sure. right back. Oh. Tony, what, what's your favorite? I mean, what's the most interesting fact about World War II for you? You know, there's there's so many. And uh, like like uh, Phil pointed out, there's there's so much that um, that I'm still learning, you know, as I go through this. I mean, I've been bringing these groups over there for 25 years. And, and every single tour, I'm learning something, you know, from the people uh, and from their, you know, their experience from their, from their dad and their grandpa and so forth. But, um, as far as, you know, what, what I find the most interesting Mac is, uh, um, the fact that this whole occult connection with Hitler, I mean, you, you know, you mentioned yeah. the, uh, uh, astrology and so forth. There's, there's still a lot of people that don't quite understand that, uh, you know, Hitler was deeply involved in the occult, um, mm -hmm. And uh, it wasn't just, you know, chasing uh, um, weird symbols and stuff. I mean, he was indoctrinated into this stuff. And, and uh, I'll throw a name out, out for you. Dietrich Eckhart 
I don't know how many people have ever heard of Dietrich Eckhart, sure, but sure. The, the, the guy was basically Hitler's mentor. You know, he was a uh, into uh, you know the dark arts and and um, you know he Dietrich Eckhart actually was the guy that Hitler dedicated his book Mein Kampf to. You know, he actually oh. dedicated his book to to Eckhart. And um, anyway, you know, Eckhart died like uh, three months before Hitler was um, imprisoned for the uh, beer hall putsch in 1923. So he never lived to see Hitler come to power. But wow. on his deathbed, Dietrich Eckhart said, and I quote, don't mourn for me. I will have influenced German history greater than any other man. Hitler may dance, but I played the tune. Wow. He said that three months before Ew. Hitler on his power. deathbed. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Crazy. I mean, he he, uh, oh. he said it three months before Hitler uh, was sent to uh, to jail for the putsch. Ten years before Hitler became chancellor of, of Germany, he said that. So, hmm. it's it's uh, it's this connection that just is kind of overlooked, and and um, you know, I think. Uh, you know the History Channel and Discovery—they're starting to 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 kind of pick at this a little bit, right. but um, it's something that I think we need to you know pay a little closer attention to. Interesting. Know. I don't hey. think it was just Hitler either. Yeah, no, the whole group of right, them were into right. it. Right, yeah. right. A lot of his inner circle. Yeah, yeah a lot of yeah. his inner circle were involved in that yeah. stuff. I wonder if they and were. They had all the stuff about the the inevitability of their success, you know, based on all sorts of you know mystical connections with the with the past and. And the ancient, you know, Aryan, yeah. right, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Yep. yep. Ah. Hey, Phil. Now, nowadays, oh, uh, bomb. Gross. nowadays uh, governments use computer modeling, you know. Right. And back then, uh, Hitler used uh, uh, psychics. You know? Right. Yeah. Wow. Well, look Crazy. where it, look where we got him. Hey, Phil. You have uh, what's your favorite World yeah. War II story? Well. Well, my story is a personal story, but I think I think this is pretty interesting. That's why I'm going to spend some time on it. So when I joined Parker Brothers here in Massachusetts in 1979, I found out that we had Parker Brothers had a relationship with the Japanese company. Uh, they were trading products back and forth. And as fate would have it, just two years later, I would begin representing the company to Japan. And I traveled there at least to Tokyo at least three times a year. But my first taste of working with the Japanese occurred, I think it probably was the fall of 1979, when representatives from our partner in Japan came to Beverly, Massachusetts and met with a small team of Parker people, including myself, to review the new products that Parker Brothers was going to introduce the following year. And I noticed that there was an older gentleman who worked, I was told his name was Arakawa, and he worked in the R&D department of this Japanese company. And with every product that was presented, he drew the most detailed picture of it. No photographs, he just actually drew it by hand. And I looked over his shoulder and I thought, my God, these are so accurate. So that night, we had a dinner with him. And I had been told before the dinner that he had been in the Japanese Air Force in World War II. Hmm. Obviously, he was not one of the kamikaze. So when I came <laughs> to that dinner, and I was very interested in World War II at that point, I brought this book with me, which is called Japanese Army Aircraft of World War II. And in particular, there was one plane in the book that I found fascinating. It was this uh, fighter, twin-engine twin engine fighter, that was never 
it never got to combat, but it was specifically designed to fly as high, as fast as the B-29 bombers that were killing Japan. And the whole purpose of this new plane, the Rikugan Ki-93, was to take down B-29s. So I mentioned to the pilot, by way of the interpreter, do you know anything about this plane? He looked at me and he said, I was the test pilot. Whoa. Oh, yes. wow. And wow. right there at the dinner table while we were being served our steaks or whatever, he drew this picture of that. the plane and he dated it October 17th, 1943, and even specifies the location. This was where it was being tested, wow. where he flew it. And wow. on this page right here, he wrote, I engaged as test pilot in October of 1943. And he signed his name in Japanese up at the top here. Very nice. Wow. wow. Who so that's knows? Cool. That's cool. That, that's Very awesome. Cool. It yep. really is. Yeah. Crazy. Amazing. What are the odds? I mean, really? Yeah. Yes. Really? Right? Yeah. yeah. And then the second part of my little World War story, two story, you know, pertains to my dad. So my dad basically followed, he was in the 12th Air Force and he followed you know, Patton and Mark Clark from North Africa up through Italy and the Southern France. But after North Africa, and a lot of people don't know this, the next stop as a prelude to the invasion of Sicily was to capture the small island between Sicily and Tunisia called Pantelleria. Mm -hmm. Pantelleria was a volcanic island. It had a, a big volcano mountain on it that the Germans had carved out to make a bomb-proof hangar for their aircraft station there. And so we had to take Panelleria to remove the threat of any type of German air attack on the invasion of Sicily when it became uh, feasible. So my dad was among those who invaded Panelleria. And after the arrival, his uh, commander told everybody in his outfit, dig a foxhole because the Germans are inevitably going to be attacking us from Sicily. Uh, they don't want us here. Well, the problem was this was a volcanic island and the soil was really hard, sure. you know, really hard. So, you know, my dad labored and he built a foxhole. Not everybody in his outfit had the incentive or the common sense to do it. So sure enough, a day or two after the foxholes had been dug, at night, a big German air raid takes place and the sirens are blaring and the anti-aircraft guns are going off and everybody rushes out of their tents to dive into their foxhole. And when my father gets to his, one of the lazy guys was already in it. And the foxhole was just barely big enough for one man, because you know, the rock is really tough. Right. So my dad oh, said, "No." my dad says he can't get the guy out of there. And the only shelter that he saw was a trailer, you know, um, that I think probably had ammunition on it. So he dove under the trailer and he said during the air raid, there was a loud thud, you know, maybe 50 or 60 feet from the trailer. And then fortunately the air raid ends and you know, the Germans go home. And in the morning, my dad went to the site of the thud and he found an unexploded bomb. Oh Ooh. man. Oh, oh my That's lucky. I I have anxiety just like hearing I know. This. Oh I have, my god. I have anxiety just telling the story. Wow, that's yeah, crazy. Yeah. Juan, Juan. All I can hope is that mm. karma showed 
whoever took his foxhole exactly what he deserved. I thought he was going to be. That is so messed up. Wow. One, one, one. Do you have a favorite World War II story? One, you fought in Guadalcanal, correct? Right. Yeah. Well, (laughs) again, on the good side of the canal, right? Right. It's a dead. My dad was uh, on on a ship. I, 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 I can't remember the name of it now, which bums me out. But uh, in the Pacific, he, in the Pacific, and he was a radio man, and so he's down below decks, and uh, basically they're under uh, a lot of uh, kamikaze attacks at the time. I, I, I don't know if if they were part of a specific battle. I think it's just the 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 way it was when you're out in the Pacific is that you never know. Um, who's going to attack you when, why, and how. Yeah. But they have some uh, photos of uh, basically, uh, I guess you'd call them a near miss because they, they, they weren't hit, but planes uh, hit uh, a radio tower, a conning tower, and that was about it. So it's like you, you, you're on deck and you're ducking because you know, here they come. And uh, wow. th- those planes were uh, apparently shot and they were on fire. And they were, you know, bound and determined to take you with them. And uh, it was just uh, a couple of close calls. Yeah, that wow. That's my awesome. father would talk about. It. I think somewhere in my vast library, I have one of their year, uh, the ship's yearbook, and has a, a photo or two, uh, or two in it. And I'll have to dig it up now that we're talking about it because I have it in my library someplace. Uh-huh. Hey, Switchy. Fantastic. You had a World War II. And, and again, he never talks about it. Yeah, no. Unless you my father tried to squeeze either. it out of him right. at uh, Thanksgiving dinner or something. Yeah, my father very rarely yeah. talked about it. It's understandable. Switchy, go ahead. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> my dad uh, left boot camp and uh, we shipped out to Pearl Harbor. <clears throat> and I can't remember whether it was he was on the way to Pearl Harbor or got there and the war ended. Oh, so wow. he spent his time cool. in. In the uh, <clears throat> war, which wasn't really war, eating shrimp on Hawaii. Wow. So I could be a long line of war heroes. Yeah, but yeah, right. my, my favorite incident <laughs> was, was actually based on a, uh, a movie. It was based on a real incident. Uh, I love the story of Sergeant York. Yep. Oh, yeah. Well, that's yeah, World, yeah. War World War I. World War I. Oh, it World War I? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Well, I still love it. I love it enough. It's great. It's a great story. Switchy, um, we're in the same I guess I haven't seen it for it. about 30 years, but... I just want to, well, let me just add this in only because uh, <clears throat> my assistant is here today. I've talked about this before on the show. Um, Lois's father, Richard Kennedy, was the youngest Marine to land on Okinawa. He was 15 years old during the invasion of Okinawa. 15? Yeah, he lied about what? his age. Oh my he tried to use his older brother's um, birth certificate many times. The Marines would not let him in, and then finally... You know, halfway through the war, they just needed warm bodies. He joined at 14, was sent to Guadalcanal for training, and he landed on um, Okinawa on Easter, Easter Sunday, um, 1945. And um, <clears throat> he turned, uh, his birthday was like six days later, yeah. Yep. And the funny wow. thing is, is that, not funny, but um, so they win the war. He was in occupation duty in Japan for about <clears throat> six months. And then he went back to school in Brooklyn in high school, and he had to do his senior year. Okay, so he, he had to do his senior year. But he they wouldn't let him play on the baseball team because he was too much of a man. What? That's, that's all they wanted to do was play baseball. And they wouldn't let him. Yeah. Yep. 
Yeah, too much of a man. He, so. he wasn't a kid I'm anymore. So confused. Gary, do you have? Yeah, makes sense of that. Yep. Raven, do you have a World War II story you want to tell us? Um, I don't want to call it like my favorite because it's it's awful. It's war, but uh, I've always been fascinated by the evacuations of Dunkirk, which oh, I'm sure. pretty oh. sure is World yeah. War II. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, I did a big project on it when I was in college, but um, you know. There was a bit of reefer madness going on there. So <laughs> what? But, um, I. It's just. It's so. It's so messed up, and it's just so sad what what those people went through. Yep. Um, but that's always been what I've been drawn to out of it. And there was a really good movie that I watched that. Um, I don't want to say it like did a good job because again, it's, it's such a horrible situation, mm -hmm. but um, it's called atonement and it, it's, it's like a mixture of like fiction and nonfiction. If anyone's seen it, um, it's a really good movie I worth watching. Um, but they focus uh, intensely on the evacuations of Dunkirk and the, the famine, the disease, the the starve, everything. It is so raw, and it's it really just like hits you all at once. It's a really good movie, and oh, I f I'm I'm a giant goosebump just talking about it. Whoa. But um, it's really good. It's worth watching, and it's my favorite part of history, mm. probably ever. The Battle um, of Britain was another great film that uh, right, captured yeah. a real event. Yep. Oh, did it? Okay. The um the so whole the finest hour. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the whole, what's, the whole... what's really profound to think about is that the British rear guard could not be evacuated. They had to hold the beach as long as possible. Right. And all but 2,000 of them were captured, which meant they served the longest in German POW camps of any um, British soldiers during the war, from mm -hmm. almost the beginning until the end. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we were just, uh, my assistant just popped her head in and we talked about your father being the youngest guy on Okinawa. You know, just an interesting guy, interesting story. And all he, as wow. I said, all he wanted to do, he says, I didn't mind going back to high school, but I just wanted to play in the baseball team and they wouldn't let him because he was too oh. much of a man. <laughs> um, just real quick like, about the Dunkirk. You can't uh, even be like, oh, gosh. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> the Dunkirk evacuation was very interesting because at the moment that you would think that the Germans would really just put the pedal to the metal and finish the thing in Europe, they stopped. And yeah. and the yeah, Allies right? were able to get, uh, you know, a lot of British, a lot of French, a lot of troops back to England, like 300,000 people. That's an entire army. Um, 350,000. Yeah. And, and the reason was, I mean, there's there's been theories on why, but, you know, some people say, well, he didn't want to destroy England or whatever, but it was really a fuel thing. They, <clears throat> they were running out of fuel, and that's why they did it. And the tanks needed ma and the tanks needed maintenance because they had been going flat out. Hmm. So, okay. And, and the other thing is, the France wasn't finished yet. You know, they still had to turn south and take care of the French army. So, yeah, but still, it seems inexplicable that they stopped. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah they got to wipe them out. Hey, one, did you? To. Uh, so yeah, uh, if, they had, if they had if they had taken care of those extra three hundred and fifty thousand troops that escaped, 
That would have been a different story. Would have been really different. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, been really absolutely. Well, hey, listen, why don't we take a quick break now? You're listening to Mac Maloney's Military X-Files show here on the Distant Thunder Radio Network, talking all about World War II tonight. So stay with us. Um, we'll be right back after this. And by the way, I want to mi- remind everyone uh, to get in touch with us. Just go to MacMaloney.com, hit the contact button, put your name into the Magic Fishbowl, and we'll be picking out the winner of uh, the game that we just played earlier. So um, with that in mind, let's uh, take a break now, and we'll be right back after this. Once again, you're listening to Mac Maloney's Militrax Show here on the Distant Thunder Radio Network. I was in the hospital with my son for 18 months. When he got injured, I wasn't prepared, but I knew I had to be strong. When I was told about John's injury, I was in complete shock. I just remember rushing into his room and giving him a big hug and letting him know I was there. These veterans and families are just a few of the heroes we serve at Homes for Our Troops. For thousands of severely injured veterans, everyday life is filled with barriers. It was really the the little things throughout the house. Counters that you can't roll up to. I had to drag my wheelchair down steps. I want to help, but he is so determined. At Homes for Our Troops, we build specially adapted custom homes with features like wheelchair access, roll-in showers, and automatic door openers that allow them to function independently and focus on their recovery and family. This house is freedom. It's hope. It's a new beginning. This house has given me my family back. To learn more, visit hfotusa.org. Welcome back, everyone, to Mag Maloney's Military Exile Show here on the Distant Thunder Radio Network. Having so much fun, we're losing our voices. This is World War II night. The entire gang is here. Tony Cisneros, Raven is here. Phil O'Banes is here. Our good friend Gary Olson is here. Jim Frankel is here. Switchy is here. And now Wani is back. So we got about yeah, 10 more minutes. Way. Gary, <clears throat> Gary, please tell us a story about your father-in-law. Yeah, my father-in-law, who I never met because he passed away before I met my wife, but he was a uh, Air Corps, Army Air Corps uh, reconnaissance pilot <clears throat> during World War II in uh, Southeast Asia. Um, <clears throat> I always uh, uh, like to say that he's the one that discovered the bridge over River Kauai that they ended up bombing. But uh, he passed away, and he's buried in uh, Arlington Cemetery, so I ended up... Uh, walking around uh, his area where he's buried and a hundred feet away were uh, two graves by the last name McCain. And one was um, John McCain's great uncle who was a general in the army. And the other one was his uh, grandfather who was a uh, admiral during World War II. Mm. And I looked him up and I believe uh, you probably can um, uh, embellish on this but uh, he was the admiral during the uh, battle of the um, Philippines uh, late in the war John McCain did come from a naval family for sure Good John stuff. McCain yeah. was I never voted yeah, for him but yeah I think he did he was like the last decent guy you know I mean he was a POW I, I, I did not agree with him politically but he was a real American hero right to the end that guy um, so anyway yeah, uh, really. um yeah. 
Where do we go from here? Juan, did you tell your World War II story? You did about your father-in-law, right? About your father. I did. Yep. About my dad. Yep. Um, <clears throat> but I want to. I want to just interject one more time because I got a film background, and the one one incident that really was a head scratch was an actor named a British actor named Leslie Howard. Right. Yep. yep. And, uh, he yep. ended up. Um, Getting shot down, he was doing some um, film work. Apparently, he was doing film lectures in Portugal. That was his cover. And then he gets on a plane with 17 other people, and they, the Germans shoot him down. And there's been several books about the incident uh, afterwards. Um, of course, Leslie Howe was played Ashley in Garden with the Wind. Uh, do you know anything about this uh, incident, Phil? Uh, I do not. I know a little. Um, yeah. They were um, they allowed that plane to be shot down because they didn't want the Germans to know that they had broken the ultra code, and there were things that they that they knew that they just couldn't let on. And uh, right. Les, Leslie Howard was on that airplane, and also on the airplane was the actor um, Raymond Burr, who played Perry Mason, oh. uh, his wow. first wife. Now this could be a cover story, but. His first wife was also on that plane. Um, you know, they were just—they had to make like tough choices during World War II, and that was one of them. You know, they knew that the Germans knew that plane was taking off from Portugal, from Lisbon, and they knew that if they protected it or whatever, that then the Germans would figure out they must be listening in on us. So they couldn't do it. But one more thing about Lisbon, Portugal, and I'm glad my agent is on the line with us. How many spies do you think were in Lisbon, Portugal during World War II? Within a hundred. A lot. There yeah. are many. From 20, all countries, right? 2,500. 2,500 spies. Yeah. Yep. And Switzerland Switzerland would have had probably as many if it wasn't landlocked by the, by the Axis parties. Mm -hmm. Right. By the way, I have a Mel Brooks uh, tidbit. Remember we were talking earlier about Mel Brooks and how much we love his movies. Yes. And I had mentioned... <clears throat> that he actually fought in World War II. Well, he was at the Battle of the Bulge. Really? Uh, yeah, huh? Oh yeah, my gosh, was, seriously? Mm. Wow. He was, he was in, a, in a combat uh, engineering bata battalion, uh, and w one of his tasks during the war was to defuse landmines. Oh, God. <laughs> Can you believe that? And what? he survived Oof. that, and he survived the Battle of the Bulge. That's amazing. Yeah. Oh, that That's wild. How do you, we almost how do you didn't train have somebody to do that? Pardon me? How do you train somebody to defuse landmines? Where's the landmine defusing? I, I, uh, I think you have to be school. partially crazy to, yeah, really. to, to not you know, lose your nerve to do something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That um, reminds me of another uh, PBS uh, show. Remember uh, Danger UXB? Yeah. Awesome show. Um, uh, Yogi Berra was in... Um, on a ship off of um, D-Day. He was in D-Day. Uh, Eddie Arnold, Eddie Albert uh, won Eddie a medal Albert, yeah. for saving people in Saipan, I think, or uh, one of those, Tarawa, one of those awful invasions. Johnny um, Carson was in the Navy. Johnny Carson was in the Navy, yep, yep. Yeah, he was on board ship, yeah. Clark Gable, sure Clark Gable flew B-17 missions, Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy Stewart rose Clark to Clark Gable and Jimmy Stewart. Yep. Jimmy Stewart yes. was the first... You know, celebrity to join the uh, armed forces. He was sent to England. At first, the Air Force used him to broadcast, you know, morale-building messages to the troops. 
And finally, Stewart said, I've got enough of this. I want combat. And he became a combat pilot on a, uh, I forget it was a B-24 or a B-17. Mm-hmm. But he rose to the rank of colonel all on his own. That's amazing. Awesome. What was that? I love she, that so much. Yeah. Yeah. If, you know, if the war had gone on another year, he would have been a general. Yeah, wow. Well, hmm. If he had survived. Good for him. Maybe yeah. it's crazy well, that yeah. John Wayne was never there. Nope, never yeah, there. Never there. Never there. So listen. Well, director uh, John Ford, he uh, went to uh, Midway, Midway. To, uh, to film the um, on the island to film the during the attack. During the attack, and then he goes to uh, on D-Day, Normandy, and uh, not the initial wave, but uh, a few waves uh, later, and just uh, films the uh, carnage going on uh, on the, those beaches. Of course, yeah. they never released the film because it was just so bad. There was it took a long time before the appearance of, of an intact dead body appeared right. in a magazine or a newspaper right. in America. The censorship was so great. And by the way, when Ford was wounded on Midway, he turned to his cameraman who was coming to his aid and he basically said, keep filming. Forget about me. Keep filming. Wow. Right. Mm. Uh, well, we have to bring the yeah. show to a close. Um, very interesting yeah. show tonight. World War II trivia contest. We've been talking about World War II. Let me just uh, thank everybody. Um, let's just start with Jim Frankel. Thank you very much, Jim, book agent. My pleasure. Grateful Dead. Thanks a lot. Fan. Marine manuscript. Great to have you, Jim. Okay, thanks. At our illustrious gathering. And we will yep. uh, we'll talk to you very soon. Uh, Gary Olson, thank you for joining us, Big Geo. Thank you. Oh, thank you for having me. I learned a lot tonight. I think yeah, we all so did. Nice. It was good. Best wishes, Gary. It was good. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. It was good. Tony Cisneros of Alp Ventures, uh, World War II touring company. Um, thanks Great for joining being, us. Thank you, Great Tony. Being back on the show, Mac. I'm waiting for the time travel. Yes. <laughs> be the extra special package. I, I owe you, Mac. You you uh, you smoked me on that trivia, so I, I don't have to be back and redeem myself. I don't know if we want to use that verb, but okay. Gone. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Tony. Um, Phil, thank you very much for joining us. We really appreciate it. We'll talk to you As soon. Always, it's great, and it's an honor to be among such a great group of people, men and women. Wow. Well, thank you very much. That, that's Thank you so awesome. much, Phil. Come and thank do it. Great job. Hey, Phil, come and do it live with us sometime. Yeah. You well, might it's not that far away from me. <laughs> we'll need a wheel man that night. Listen, yeah. thank you very much. Uh, Raven, of course, thank you for uh, joining us, keeping score. Switchy. Thank you for having me. Switchy, thank you for cheerleading. Uh, that's all I can do is uh, is wave the pom-pom because that's, my voice is... That's all we like needed. Yours. You and I got the same thing for some reason. Wani, thank you as always. You're welcome. Have I thanked here, here. everybody? And uh, Lois is here in the background. Thank you, Lois, for joining us. She's, Great to see Lois. Hey. She's Hi, waving thing. Hey. <laughs> so listen, so everyone now go to uh, macmaloney.com, hit the contact button. And then uh, put your name in, and we'll be drawing uh, someone's name from the Magic Fishbowl uh, to win the cool game tonight, um, vintage uh, edition of Risk. Kevin Kimball of somewhere up there in Seattle area won the first Sandwich contest. Sandwich Washington. Yay! Yeah. Let's give it. And uh, I think that's it. Have I said thank you to everyone, Lois? I think that's it. Well, I just want to uh, give the plugs real quick. Homes for Our Troops. Homes for Our Troops is a military charity that builds Homes for Iraqi war veterans, Afghani war veterans, 
people who came home without them, some of their limbs, and they design these houses so they can get around easily in them, and um, and then they just give them the keys. No mortgage, no nothing. They deserve it. Homes for our troops. And also, um, People's Mosquito Project, um, um, our friend Ross Sharp is putting together a uh, mosquito warplane from World War II with his mad Englishman friends. Just go on People's Mosquito Project. I need a lozenge. You know, made out of wood. Two made out of wood. Rolls-Royce engines. Made out of no wood. No smoking. Yeah, no smoking. <laughs> Made out of what two Rolls Royce engines, <laughs> and it was it turned out to be the fastest thing in World War II for about two years. So fast they didn't put guns on them. Why, Juan Juan? Because they could outrun a bullet. Outrun the bullets. <laughs> yeah. So let's bring this uh, to a close. Thank you, thank you everyone for listening. Uh, we're a podcast. You know where we are, and we will uh, see you next week. And until then, this is Mac for the entire gang saying: Be safe, be happy, and bye bye.